Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay. Okay. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be talking to you. I have on the program today, Forrest Gander. He has a new poetry collection out on New Directions. It is called Twice Alive. Forrest Gander won the 2019 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for his collection, Be With. He was also a finalist for the Pulitzer and the National Book Critics Circle Award for his collection entitled Core Samples from the World. He's one of our most uh, accomplished poets. And through the years, he has collaborated with artists in a variety of different media, including Sally Mann, the photographer, Raymond Meeks, and uh, the late Vic Chestnut. So, a wonderful time talking with Forrest Gander, meeting him, and getting to uh, learn a little bit more about him, his work, and his life. And I thought that we would begin today, as I often do with poets on this show, by hearing from Forrest himself, hearing him read a selection from his new collection. So, here he is. This is Forrest Gander reading... A poem entitled Immigrant Sea from his new collection, Twice Alive. Aroused by her inaccessibility, he aches for more of her life to live inside him. Watching the breakers, standing so close he can feel heat coming off her wet scalp. What is his relation to this person before him? so familiar and foreign. The way he searches out her face, he searches out himself. Gusts thrash crests of swell, spring grasses twirl circles in the sand where they stand without speaking. She wants him to know it's all charged, even grass, positive, pollen, negative. So when grass waves, it sweeps the air for pollen. He feels electricity all around, as though the wild drama of the coming storm were already aware of them, foreigners on this shore. 
Little sapphire blue flowers speckle the dunes. He wonders if he has let himself flatten out into a depthless sheet like escalator stairs, whether in the end he'll disappear underground without the smallest lurch of resistance. But when her lavish face turns toward him, beaming, the corners of her eyes wind wet, he yields to that excess. He reappears to himself. Okay, there you go. That's Forrest Gander reading a poem entitled Immigrant Sea from his new collection, Twice Alive, available now from New Directions. Today's episode of the Other People podcast is brought to you by Restless Books, publisher of the debut novel Catch the Rabbit by Lana Bostichich. Catch the Rabbit won the 2020 European Union Prize for Literature. It's now available in translation over here in the States from Restless Books. This is a fine novel. I just had Lana on the program last week, had a great talk with her. I love this book. It's a road novel. It's a story about identity and memory and friendship, and in particular, friendship between women, and how the people in our lives, especially those whom we're closest to, the bonds we forge in our childhood in particular, how those bonds and those people help us to understand who we are and where we are and what happened. Catch the Rabbit by Lana Bostichich, available now from Restless Books. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right, so let's get to today's conversation. My guest, once again, is Forrest Gander, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and author of the new collection, Twice Alive, available now from New Directions. Here he is, folks. This is Forrest Gander. There's so much um, anguish about our situation, our ecological situation. I wanted to approach the book also celebrating um, the beauty and the modalities like intimacy with lichen that um, we can feel hopeful about. So it's not just... Uh, the bad trip of the bad news. 
So talk to me about lichen, because this was something that in reading, um, you know, the author's note at the top and then reading the collection itself, I was, um, I was struck by, you know, you, I think you mentioned how we learned about this in high school. I was struck by the fact that I, I must have been absent that day <laughs> or, or, or forgotten it altogether, which would be totally on brand for me. But like, can you talk a little bit about lichen and how um, it inspired the, you know, kind of the thematic concerns of the collection? Sure. Yeah. I, I had an opportunity to work with this fantastic mycologist named Ann Pringle, who often writes for the New York Times about uh, fungi and mushrooms, lichen. Um, up in Michigan, um, near Lake Huron at this wilderness area. And it turns out that, as with so many things, we think we're so advanced. But uh, scientists have realized they don't really even know what lichen is. It, um, w on that day that you missed in high school, when I was there, they taught us that, you know, it's basically two things. Uh, an algae and a fungi that get together, or cyanobacteria could be uh, part of the algae, um, that they get together and they make this other thing that acts different from algae and different from, uh, from a fungus, um, and that's permanent. They're invested in this collaborative entity that they make forever. And the forever part is interesting, too, because the scientists are realizing, and Pringle being one of them, that perhaps uh, lichen has a kind of theoretical immortality. If it's given enough nutrients, it might not die. So the thought of two things that come together and make something stronger, something different in their um collaboration in that mutuality and that might not uh, die um, made me think very much about um, human intimacy about our deepest relations our most intimate relations that transform us that expand who we are and and I thought of using that as um, as a way of thinking about our intimacy with the world and with each other yeah and the uh like for those of us, for those listeners at home who are trying to picture lichen in their in their minds and might be failing at that, can you describe where one we, might see it? <laughs> we've all seen it. It's that stuff uh, that can be it was stuff all over rocks um, in every uh, every landscape that there is. There is lichen, including um, in the uh, in the Arctic um, and in the deserts. Um, it's, uh, it's an indicator for it. So it's, we see it on rocks. It's often, uh, gray or slightly green. It can look very dry. It's almost impossible to, to tell if lichen is dead or alive. People refer to it both as lichen singular and lichen plural. Um, but it's the same stuff and it's an indicator for pollution too. We see more of it on rocks and trees in climates that have good air. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, Mike, you said that you mentioned, or you mentioned that you worked with Ann Pringle, who's a mycologist. And myco yeah. mycologists, if I'm not mistaken, are concerned with fungi, with mushrooms, right? Right. But so lichens is, is at least half of it is a fungi. 
Um, and then the other half is this cyanobacteria or an algae. And actually, then it gets more complicated. There are more creatures involved in it as well. And that's part of also what I'm trying to um, write about in this book is how even our notions of ourselves are um, are romanticized when we think that we're one thing because we're composed of in you know of, of thousands of bacteria that have different DNA that are part of our DNA that we have um, parasites moving through our system that we depend upon to help break down our food that are part of us that and parasites that whose DNA has become part of our DNA. So that old racist uh, thing, the Ku Klux Klan, um, but not only is there not racial purity, but there's no such thing as species purity. We are just mongrels. Well, I, you know, it's funny. It's funny. It, it's interesting to hear you say that because uh, I was having a conversation on this show not too long ago about identity and the self and I read a lot about this. This is fascinating to me, this idea that whatever we perceive of as our fixed selves is actually an illusory notion. And yet to talk about it and to try to explain it uh, is something that I'm uh, gifted at botching. <laughs> you know, <laughs> once I get into like the, the weeds on it, you know, but it, in, in truth, and I think nature is a great place to look and reflect on this. It's not that difficult to understand that we are composites and that we're deeply uh, interrelated, not just human to human, but human to animal and human to plant. Like, I don't know why human beings do such a consistently poor job of acknowledging this deep truth and behaving accordingly. <laughs> yeah, me too, Brad. I mean, I think partly, um, you know, I, Christianity, for all the good things that it may have brought to the world, you know, divided life up into the redeemable and the irredeemable, and um, and also gave humans the roles of being above all of the animals and the rest of the world, the masters, and that kind of thinking has um, collided with our understanding of science now and of the self. And uh, and we've seen where that kind of thinking has led the world to a complete um, obsessive uh, uh, way of, of just using the world for our own needs and for our own short-term needs. And that that's having results that are going to start killing us as well as all the other species. Yeah. I was having uh, a conversation. I mean, this is kind of, you know, related, but uh, like at an angle. And I was talking to my friend about the NBA playoffs <laughs> and we were lamenting that our team was not faring well. And the superstar on the team is, an incredibly likable human being. Uh, I don't know if you follow basketball, but Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just like the most likable, nicest guy. And I was, uh, I was saying, you know, I started like, you know, he's got to get meaner if they're going to win. And I was kind of grief stricken as I said this because I feel <laughs> like this is what our society does. Like Michael Jordan, who's like, you know, we valorize this kind of like vicious 
hyper individualistic competitive you know win at all costs mentality and um i think i was sort of like grief stricken because i was like oh my god is this what's going to have to become of this nice young guy who's like (laughs) smiling all the time if he's ever gonna you know win and then i think about that like countenanced against you know the way that human beings relate to one another and relate to our environment and you know I, i know it's kind of uh it, you know, it's kind of far afield, but I feel like it's all of a piece in a way, you know, the way that our, our wrongheaded thinking has led us to this spot where we've managed to put our very, you know, our, our very existence as a species and the very existence of the planet in peril. Yeah. It's an amazing moment. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, a single, a single star player, even St- Steph Curry, you know, can't, can't make, you know, make it to the finals without a, a whole team around him. Yeah. There, yeah. There you go. And, um, I think too, there's a, there's something radical and, and, you know, I, earlier I said, wow, it's, it's really not that hard to grasp that w- we all need one another and that we're all interrelated at the same time. There is something I think radical about this notion of being a composite of not being the fixed self that we look at in the mirror and conceive of maybe in our minds. Um, when that starts to come apart, that's not a small change in the way that we reckon with ourselves. It's no, a big, it's, it's a big shift. Radical. Yeah. It's a radical change, but it doesn't have to be a horrifying one. It's sort of a, a change where we realize that, um, we're we've already merged with the world just as when we're born it's the it's the you know it's the world and human language that that constructs our minds we don't do it on our own it's these these systems in place that um that we're integrated with that make us who we say we are um but it could be a joyous thing finding um, how much we share with, um, with, with trees, with other animals. Um, and then to take some responsibility for that. What does that mean? How can we just say that human life is so much more important than the life of billions of, of other creatures? Well, and the ways in which too, I think we underestimate the intelligence of nature um, you know, if we're on the subject of mycology, uh, I think, uh, you know, I've listened, I want to say you acknowledge Paul Stamets in your, in your I book, yeah. in, the, in the back matter of your book. And I've listened to some interviews with Paul Stamets, uh, through the years and am familiar with the work that he does. I'm no expert on it, but you know, it can be pretty thrilling to hear about the intelligence of fungi, <laughs> Uh, and like that whole world is uh, almost alien. Uh, and I don't think most people have the opportunity to spend the time to maybe think deeply about all that or to, or understand um, like what's at work just in that area of nature alone. But it's pretty magnificent. Yeah, I think, you know, and that sort of paying attention to the world around us is a lot like reading poetry that, you know, we're surrounded by spectacle and, and, uh, constant incoming and to make sure that, um, we retain control over what we give our attention to 
um, so that we can have these experiences like all alone, reading a book in a room that are transformative um, or that we notice when we go outside that it's not just a bunch of birds. It's uh, it's a, a, a flock of, you know, Carolina parakeets or something um, that we see. Those sorts of discriminations, I think, give both perception and feeling a kind of nuance that um, that can expand the meaning of what it you know what it is to be human. Yeah, and something that uh, your collection made me think about too is is this notion of of being able to name things. You have such a wonderful grasp of your surroundings, at least in insofar as this collection is concerned, in ways that I often don't. And I lament this, like going out into nature and not knowing what the name of a certain tree is, even though I might admire it, knowing what the name of a certain flower is. I think there's real value in getting good at that. <laughs> I wish I were better at it because I think once you have that sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Is it taxonomy? You know what I mean? Like being yeah. able to, being able to name and categorize things and having a, at least that level of intimacy with your surroundings deepens your appreciation a bit. And if it like at the, at the very least just gives you a, I don't know. It's like knowing somebody's name, you know, it personalizes it a bit. There's a level of respect that I think it, uh, it offers. Well, that's, I, I thought that I had a pretty, uh, sharp awareness of things outside of me. Um, you know, I grew up in Virginia, uh, a, a lot and, and spent a lot of time since I was, um, I didn't have a father and my mother was uh, working all the time. I, I was on my own in the woods but when I was hanging around with Ann Pringle, this mycologist in Michigan, I was just shocked by how many mushrooms are around us all the time that I never noticed. Um, and that, again, sort of noticing how much we're surrounded by and involved with other life, um, I think, can be uh, a, a really stimulating um, opportunity for us to think of ourselves as being connected and not so singular. Well, and, and being in that mode, um, obviously like that fits well into the life of and concerns of a poet. Um, it, I think it cuts pretty strongly against current cultural values. Uh, you know, the kind of hyper digital, attention economy that we find ourselves in all the distractions all the spectacle that you referenced earlier and trying to be a person who pays attention and who recognizes interconnectivity um and recognizes and honors nature you know is not something that we necessarily hear a lot of applause for in mainstream culture and i guess i'm curious to hear you talk about how you structure your life, you know, like, are there things that you do to try to block out time? Uh, are there things that you like, are there certain austerities that you take on, uh, in your daily life to try to make sure that you don't get lost in the noise? It's funny that you asked me this, Brad, because it's sort of the same question I have for you. Cause I'm kind of amazed that, um, you 
keep up with so much reading and that also your responses, I mean, your job is, is perfectly made for you because you have a mind that's very relaxed and can be very referential um, along a lot of planes. Um, it's kind of impressive. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, uh, I feel like, if I'm being honest, keeping up with the reading, you know, I read, a, I feel like I'm swimming in books, which is a great thing. Um, I think during the pandemic, especially I've had more time, um, to read just for a variety of life circumstances. But one of it is, one of them is just that I'm home all the time. I've been yeah. home, you know, yeah. not as much movement, you know, just trucking the kids back and forth to school and things like that. But, um, I worry sometimes that I'm reading too quickly. Uh, I'll say that, you know, as a confession, but I don't know. I think, I I think I know what I don't know and I'm very curious. And so it's a joy to get to talk with people who spend a lot of time, uh, inside their own minds and reading and making books. You know, it's the, to me, it's just like an education, like a continuing education. Yeah. That's my company too. I like Nietzsche described himself as a teacher of slow reading. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and any, Anybody who reads poetry is, you know, I think that's the fear some people have about poetry is that it takes a slow reading. It takes a kind of an investment and involvement and um, not just a kind of passive looking at, um, at images blow up on a screen. Well, OK. And this is a question I have uh, as a reader of poetry is trying to find equilibrium between intentional, slow reading, careful consideration of the text and getting bogged down or insecure in places where I'm missing, I feel like I'm missing references or not quite understanding the full intent of the author. I think there has to be some balance between a slow, careful read and also just like kind of letting it wash over you. Sometimes you just have to let yourself go along for the ride, right? Totally, totally, Brad. I think that's really important. I think that it's not so vital that you understand logically everything that happens in an artwork or in, in a poem that you do let things wash over you because you're, um, because it's importance isn't as, uh, just a message. I mean, essays are good for that and can be really logical, but a poem is using, um, a, a, a system of, uh, thinking and feeling that has leaps in it. And, um, and I think like sometimes in my work, I use scientific language that I know not everyone is going to understand. Or sometimes I use Spanish because I'm interested in bilingual um, texts. And even if someone doesn't understand those, they have a texture, um, a sound quality, a texture and also the context also um, often lets you sort of know what it means. But I think, um, and, you know, Keats most famously talks about negative capabilities as to his brother. You know, you don't want to be scrambling, um, scrambling after every little meaning as you go along. You want to be hit by the whole thing. You want it to, you know, hits you between your brain and your genitalia where your heart is. 
And you do some interesting things uh, formally, like with a text that I haven't seen or haven't seen much of. Uh, one of them is the use of, I guess you would call it bullet points, but it's not bullet points in the traditional usage. It's not a vertical stack of bullet points, but it's bullet points in between words in the text, words in a particular stanza. Um, the other thing is the use of boldface. Uh, I'm sure there are other instances or examples of this that I simply have not seen, but I'm just, I, I, it was striking to me and I'd just be curious to hear you talk a little bit about those uh, creative choices. So the, um, the, the sort of dots that I'm using, um, are as uh, a, a way of, instead of, um, I'm really interested in line break and poetic line break and the way that can remake meanings. Um, but in those poems, um, uh, which are often based on these Sangam poems, which is a, this Indian tradition, um, I wanted the connections to be a little quicker so that there wasn't a line break that you came and jumped all the way back to the beginning. But I also wanted to break up um, the, the rhythmic havoc of iambic pentameter so that it didn't feel um, so that there was a stumble in sort of perception. The way we use iambic pentameter, it's like the perfect break um, in casual conversation. We have little pauses about after every five syllables. Um, but to break that up and make the reading experience a little more complicated, a little more hobbled um, so that it's breaking up before the rhythm finishes. And there's this little connection, but um, but not a complete syntactical connection to the next line that interested me. Um, the boldface, um, I use boldface words Brad's talking about in the long, longest series in, in the book, which is uh, this Lichen series, the title sequence called Twice Alive. And curiously, it's been the thing um, that most that I've heard most from uh, others who have written me saying, you know, really like the book, but what's this with the boldface words here? <laughs> I totally don't get it. And um, so I'm, I'm wondering about how that worked, but this is the poem about Lichen and so I'm thinking about having a sort of d different characteristic, like, you know, you have the the fungus and the cyanobacteria. This is like the dark cyanobacteria. You have this different quality embedded in in the text as a kind of enactment of um, of a cooperative system. And then, uh, like, just to, to kind of finish uh the conversation we've been sort of having throughout about the work that you did, uh, like kind of out in nature, uh, like observationally, I'm curious to know how you got in touch with Ann Pringle. Like, how did you get to this point where this became a concern of yours and you were like working in collaboration with a mycologist? Yeah. Well, for one thing, I'm going to have a degree in geology and I've, uh, maintained friendships with, uh, with lots of people in the in the fields of science and physics and biology, I also um, travel with a, a wonderful biologist poet here in Sonoma, in Maya Kosla. Um, but with Ann Pringle, I was invited because I write about, um, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, what we call nature a, a lot, the non-human a lot. 
Um, I was invited by a wonderful uh, literary scholar named uh, Lynn Keller to come up and be part of a, a, a group of, of a, there was a Native American artist and a photographer and um, a poet and a scientist and, and this literary critic, uh, Lynn Keller. And we all went up to see what we could learn from each other in, in this uh, incredible environment on the pristine environment on Lake Huron. Oh, that's, a, that's actually a, a nice thing to hear and something that I, I think should probably happen more often. And it, it's bringing to mind something I was thinking just, I want to say just yesterday, and already I'm forgetting the context, but it had to do with cross-pollination. Oh, oh, you know what it was? It was, uh, it had to do with like neuroscience and, um, and uh, quantum physics and meditation concerns and the way that these things are in dialogue with one another. But, uh, you know, you've, I'm sure you're probably familiar with ways in which like people from the scientific community have met with people in spiritual communities and, um, you know, they've had a dialogue where they've realized that they have arrived at some similar places, even though they've taken different routes. And yeah, I think that, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it, it yields interesting results, obviously, when you take somebody from the arts like yourself and you put them in dialogue with people from the sciences and different disciplines and people who are also focused on the natural world, but coming at it from a different angle. It seems like a, a wise course of action and something I wish would happen more often. Well, it used to be that, you know, science was considered to be absolutely rational and it sort of takes place on either end of an equal sign and Poetry is something completely different that has to do with sort of uncertainties. But, you know, late 20th century and certainly 21st century, uncertainty is a quality of um, most of the sciences, not just physics, particle physics. Um, and that's brought, uh, that's brought uh, literature, philosophy and science closer together, I think. I always brought my classes, my poetry classes, to um, to see the particle physics lab of Humphrey Maris at Brown University. And what would you look at there? We would look at uncertainty. We, he would be um, trying to split an electron, which is thought to be impossible, and then uh, figure out if you did split it um, and you looked for half of it, what happened to the other half and um and he was trying to film this also but that's very much um about giving up control giving up the sense that um that the humans control everything and that something can only be in one place also or or that something is going to be where you look for it in fact it's probably going to be where you don't look for it. Um, and that has a lot to do, I think, with art and poetry. That is what distinguishes it from uh, political writing or, or essays, is that the kind of, is that, I mean, poetry has been in every culture that's ever been studied, Some something that we could call poetry that's often connected with shamanism, with, with, with magic, with spirituality. And those kinds of movements don't depend so much on logocentrism, which Western culture has become so addicted to. 
I think that's why I always love talking to poets. Uh, I, I notice it that I have a lot of like I'm not a poet myself, but I I feel simpatico, you know, in in the sense of those concerns, uh, because I feel like the spiritual, for lack of a better word, you know, um, concerns that I often find in poetry are mirrored in my own day to day. I don't see how to do life without entertaining those things, um, uh-huh. and, and I guess I find in poetry and in conversations with poets, you know, just a comfort level because, uh, you know, it's a very unique tribe of people who are doing that work in a culture that doesn't often give a shit or is tuned into entirely different entertainments. Let's put it that way, you know? Yeah. No, the New York Times is so frustrating that it won't review, uh, review poetry. Um, but the cool thing is, Brad, that, um, at this moment in in time in in the United States, there's just the Academy of American Poet, Poets was just um, touting this big uh, survey, and poetry reading in the United States has just logarithmically increased in the last ten years. Partly as a you know because of all this um, focus on uh, politics and identity, and people are finding that. Um, that the, the, the spectacle isn't feeding some part of their soul that needs to be fed and that the greatest increase in, in reading poetry in the United States right now over the last seven years has been among young people and people of color. So I think from the grassroots level, um, there's a fire lit and that, um, that, Poetry is increasingly a part of mainstream culture. That's nice to hear. And it makes sense that there would be a hunger for it. You'd have to believe there would be because there's just parts of being a human being that are not nourished by, you know, other cultural offerings. Like I, it, it fills a, it fills a void, you know, it fills a, it fills an, a, a need. And I, I've all, you know, I've made the argument to poet friends of mine, over the last decade or so that poetry in this environment is actually at an advantage. I think it's uniquely well-suited or, or comparatively well-suited to the internet in ways that longer form pieces are not like, I have a hard time reading a, like a 10,000 word essay um, on, a com- on a computer yeah. screen, but I can read a poem and enjoy a poem uh, online pretty much just the same as a, as a, uh, you know, uh, an actual book though. I always prefer the paper, but if, you know, I, I can do it more easily is, is the point. And I just am curious to know like what your take on that is as a poet, like, do you embrace the digital? Do you, have you found opportunities in it that didn't exist, you know, 10, 20 years ago that have helped you reach readers? There's a interesting, uh, case of a Japanese poet who, um, who, who's, Parents uh, were in um, the uh, town, uh, not Shigaraki, um, where the nuclear... um, Fukushima? uh, Fukushima, thank you. Yeah, Fukushima. Um, And his parents refused to leave. And so he stayed there and was one of the few people uh, sort of giving reports from there. And his reports... um, 
his daily reports were in the form of Twitter poems um, that became really important for a really large audience of people wanting to know what was happening there. And um, I think that's an example of uh, poetry adapting to new media in a way that um, that was significant. I think like Malcolm X says, you know, it's by any means necessary. And although I don't participate in social media um, myself, just because I can't figure out how to have time for it all, um, I think the I think emojis and uh, Twitter language and I think all of that can feed um, an interesting and transforming poetics. And then what about because like you know this is an interesting segue because I feel like we're we're jumping from one end of the spectrum to the next. Um, though correct me if I'm wrong, but you talk about uh, twice alive. Uh, as working in a tradition um, called Sangam literature. And that, I want to say, was a 600-year period, like 300 BC to 300 AD, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and it originates in India. But can you talk a bit more about like how you came to want to write in this tradition? Uh, like, What was your introduction to it? And, and how did you get to the, the place where you found yourself kind of carrying that torch? Well, I'm looking for, I mean, like you, look what you do. Um, you know, both of us are sort of looking for what's happening in 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 my art uh, here in the U.S. everywhere. What, you know, what are and and how are people responding to this crisis, the environmental crisis that we have, and what precedents were there for it? So, of course, I'm interested in. Uh, in Chinese poetry and Japanese poetry, which for a long time, um, you know, revered nature, but often kind of symbolically, there aren't very particular names attached to the references to nature in classical Chinese poetry or um, or Japanese poetry. Um, so looking for other models, and I... I um, have been traveling, spending a lot of time in India. I live with an, uh, a woman who uh, who grew up in India and has only lived in the States for the last five years. And, um, and India is really fascinating. Linguistically, it's fascinating. You're never in a conversation in which at least three languages are being used. You know, a local language, you know, like Tamil or, or Kannada. Then there'll be some Hindi words. There'll be some English words. That kind of mix, again, that sort of collaborative language really fascinates me. Um, but then I found, about, found out about this tradition because India also has largely symbolic um, but ancient um, uh, belief system uh, of the, the relationship between the non-human world and uh, and the human world. So many of their gods are part animal uh, and part God, and animals are very involved in people's lives. So I, I found out about um, these translations by A.K. Ramunajan of, um, of this system of poetry. Right, so 2,000 years ago, um, 
what people were writing for several hundred years in, in, in southern India were poems in which you could not express subjectivity, so your emotional subjectivity, without referencing the landscape around you, the major landscapes, the five major landscapes of southern India. And that's very connected to what a lot of people who call themselves eco-poets here are are doing, which is different from nature poetry, not just um, going out and identifying something out in nature and coming back and writing a poem about it, but from the beginning, trying to write a poem in which um, you're already part of nature, where language and perception um, isn't uh, is a relationship. It's not something just generated by the um, powerful human. And you spent time, uh, like how much time have you spent in India? I spent a lot of time in India in, in the last number of years, um, traveling around, and I've been writing about it quite a bit. Have you, Brad? I, no, it's, a, it's on my list. I'd love to go, uh, but I have not been yet. So just fascinating place, and also because it's so, the archit- everything is palimpsestic. You know, the architecture, you know, there's Muslim stuff and Hindu stuff and Buddhist stuff and they're all built on top of each other and the languages are like that too, so many languages. And um, it's a, and this relationship between the natural world and, or the, it's all natural world, right? We're natural world, but the non-human world and the, the human world is, is very deep in Indian culture. What part, what part of the country uh, have you, I mean, is it all over or is there a specific region that you spend a lot of time in? It's, it's, it's all over, but the, I've mostly spent time in the South and Sangam poetry is a Southern India phenomenon. Yeah, because the Tamil, the Tamil, isn't that a Sri Lankan reference? Am I, am I, I'm, could be totally botching it, but that's what it evoked for me because I'm no, thinking of the, the Tamil Tigers. And... That's right, the Tamil Tigers. That's the same Tamilians um, who you know, sailed to Sri Lanka. Um, yeah. Have you, have you been to Sri Lanka? I haven't been to Sri Lanka except in uh, Michael Andaje's books. Okay, yeah, I want to go there too. <laughs> that yeah, seems too. Like a fantastic place. Um, so I want to talk to you uh, about your biography a bit more. You, you mentioned briefly in the early going about growing up in Virginia. Uh, first of all, what part of Virginia? Um, so both uh, we lived uh, not far from Washington, D.C., but in the summers, um, because my mother was exhausted raising three children on her own, um, she got rid of us. And every summer I spent time in um in Southern Virginia, in Rockbridge Baths near Lexington, um, which has led to a friendship with Sally Mann, who lives in Lexington. She went to the same camp that I went to as a kid uh, down there um, when it was uh, first it was it was gender separated. So I would be there first and then she came there as soon as the, the boys left. No kidding. So you're, you're buddies with Sally Mann? So Sally Mann and I, we did, um, we have a, I have a book where uh, she's done a couple covers for my books and I have a book uh, of collaborative poems for her photographs and we stay in touch. 
Okay, because yeah, you talked about being out in the woods. I can Southern Virginia is a good place for that. Like growing up, a lot of contact with nature there. Yeah, yeah. I had pet leeches and muskrats and all kinds of snakes. My mom was very um, forgiving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's ha- she has to be a forgiving and patient raising three you know three kids on her own. Yeah. Um, so what about like formation as a, as a literary human, as a poet, like, is this something that you came to in that youth, like out in nature, or was it something that coalesced later for you? Well, the first poems I wrote were so-called nature poems, but my mom loved poetry and she loved poetry because her father, who was a Swede, uh, loved poetry and he would, it was that time when uh, everyone memorized poetry. He could stomp around the house reciting these old 19th century poems. You call me chief and you do well to call him chief who for 12 long years fought and faced every form of man or beast the Roman empire could provide go on and on. And my mom brought me up uh, reading Edgar Allan Poe and Carl Sandburg and uh, sort of popular uh uh, English language poets. So that got into me um, early on. And um, and I thought I was a hotshot poet uh, in high school. And my first year in college, uh, William and Mary at a little, uh, little house on, uh, next to Wren Chapel, I met my English professor and showed him my poems. And he read a few and he looked up to me with these doleful eyes like a basset hound and said, Forrest, these are terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the real beginning of my education as a poet, because then I thought, oh, this isn't just about my ego and about I need to learn something about the art. And then I began reading very intensively. Isn't it kind of a it's nice in retrospect, at least, that you have somebody who cares enough about you when you're that age to tell you that the poetry is terrible. You know, sometimes teachers miss on that. They're trying to be too nice. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh-huh. It was it was important for me. So, okay, so you're a young man. You're at William & Mary. You've got like a sheaf of poems, uh, you know, that you've already put down. Uh, were you thinking like, this is going to be my life? Because that's like, you know, I think from the outside looking in, especially people are like, how do you how does one wind up a poet? You know, like that's your, that's your trade. Yeah. Um, was it something that you conceived of and, and kind of declared, or was it something that like one day, you know, several years later you looked up and realized that you, that you were. I I had the bug really deep and then, which meant like, like probably for you too, Brad, that your closest friends were also writers and you were talking about this stuff all the time. You just breathed it. Um, so it's what I wanted to do, but I was the only male in my family. You know, I had a mom and two sisters and a grandmother, and I had a sense that I needed to be a responsible, you know, boy. And so uh, I loved geology too. So I majored in both. I, you know, geology, I figured I would get a job in. Um, but I got cancer, um, my, the year after I graduated from college, um, I'd been actually interviewing at geology jobs and, uh, I had third stage melanoma. So it was a really close call. And while I was in the hospital, I had time to like 
really think about what if my life is not going to be as long as I had planned? What do I really most want to do? And um, and that's when I launched myself into a an MFA program at, in San Francisco. Wow. So that's a young age. You're young to get melanoma. I feel like that's something that you you build up towards or something with like lots of years of sun exposure. Well, there, you know, it was a time before people talked about sun exposure much. And I was, I, my summers, I, I was a lifeguard on the beach near ocean city, Maryland. Um, and I have light skin. Um, so I, I did everything wrong. Okay. Yeah. I just went to, I have like pre-skin cancers on my arms. Cause I lived in Colorado as a young person. It was hiking outside yeah. at yeah. altitude and I've gotten better. I found out when I was in my early thirties and I've basically been like a vampire or, or just very careful since then. But, um, I just went to the dermatologist this week to get my checkup. So I'm, I'm okay for now, but good for you, Brad. Good. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be careful. So this is our PSA for people listening, like wear sunscreen, wear, wear a hat, you know, don't think you're invincible. Um, but you know, it's easy to kind of think of in terms of fate when you have the benefit of hindsight. But just as you're going out to potentially pursue a different course, you know, the more practical, you know, you've got that geology degree. Um, it's some, you know, I don't know if it's the most linear path, but it's certainly a more linear path than poetry. Yeah. You wind up in a situation where you're faced with your own mortality in your 20s. Um, it was in your 20s, correct? Yeah, yeah, my early 20s. Uh -huh. Yeah, so, I mean, that, to me, it you know, it's easy to, make heads and tails of that by saying like, well, this is, this is the gods telling you that you're a poet, you know, this yeah, is, yeah, right. yeah. die. So write something. Yeah. Is the sense of urgency and clarity and courage, uh, if that's what you want to call it, that you derive from those experiences in the hospital kind of staring down death. Is that something that, made a lasting and permanent change on your perspective or was it fleeting? Um, I, I, I say this because I've been curious before and I've tried to even conjure this in myself in the absence of an actual experience like that, where, you know, it's like that, that thought exercise that you do, like, what would I do if I had six months to live? Yeah. Like how would I actually behave personally and professionally? Um, and it's nice to imagine that you would make some sort of radical, fundamental, permanent shift in your orientation to the world. But I wonder that in remission and with the cancer in the rearview mirror, if there's a loss of perspective and maybe a, re a reversion to like old habits of mind. Do you see what I'm saying? I, of course I do. Yeah. And that's usually the way that things work, that you have a little revelatory moment and you think it's going to change your life. And then you screw yourself back into that dull wood that you were in before. Right. Uh, but, um, I, I think it's part of my personality. I always identified with, uh, Kent and, and King Lear King, you know, when, when Kent is disguised and trying to get hired by Lear so he can actually take care of him. Um, Lear asked him, what can you do? And, and Kent says, I can run, ride, mar a curious tale in telling it, and deliver a plain message bluntly. What ordinary men are fit for, I am qualified in, and the best of me is diligence. And I think that um, I, 
I wasn't as brilliant as uh, some of my friends were, um, but I had a, a, a diligence um, that was partly manifest by that experience. It, it sort of, I was visited by a, you know, a, a, a premature seriousness in my early twenties when I'd been screwing around, and um, and then the scars. Um, are considerable and they're a reminder you don't not see those uh, looking in the mirror when coming out of the, the shower and I've had other you know it's come back also once it's in you it's in you um, so it, it did I think change me more long term I wish other experiences where I had revelations had had uh, had the sort of durance that 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 diligence that came from that experience had yeah i feel that way about psychedelic experiences <laughs> yeah you know where you're like wow you know you have these flashes and they're they're so profound in the moment and then fleeting after the fact or hard to sort of language or, or um hold on to they're slippery but um the you know the cancer scare and the fact that you say that it's still sort of there and it's kind of a shadow you know following you everywhere in the aftermath um, you're never permanently extracted from it. So I could see how the changes that it affects could be lasting. Yeah. Um, but congrats on, you know, like all these years later, you know, you've, you've made Thank it. You. Glad to be vertical and talking with you. Ab absolutely. Um, so, okay. So let's talk about the aftermath uh, in your twenties. You know, you get to a place where you're not in the hospital anymore and you've, made some decisions about your life and how you would like to proceed. Like what, what happened? So then instead of going to graduate school in geology, I, I went to, I applied to graduate school in, in creative writing. And instead of staying on the East coast where I had been living for the last, uh, tw 20 years, um, I went to the West coast, which is where I had been born. And I just wanted to get out of, uh, out of everything that I knew into something that I didn't know and could explore and feel excited about. That's the, I think going West is the place to exercise that impulse. Uh, I, I certainly had that same impulse, you know, this desire to kind of like just be in a landscape that was totally unfamiliar to me. Um, and to move into like uh, wide open spaces and also to be in contact with like nature in a, in some of its grandest forms. I know California. It's just, yeah, it's great, uh, right? It's, it's just amazing. I love waking up here. I love these hills. I love the trees. Yep, yep. And yep. I worry about you know the the drought. I do too. I do too. I mean, I was just reading about Salt Lake City, or I was reading in the Salt Lake City Tribune. I want to say the entire state of Utah has had to ban fireworks. Um, you know, it's not just California, but the whole American West is, um is just dry as a bone, you know, yeah. and I don't see like, I mean, this is a well-documented, but something that's on my mind all the time is the fire danger and the ways in which fire season in the state of California and in Oregon and, you know, other states in the American West is just now like a normal feature. And, and 15 years ago, even this wasn't something that we, I don't recall being like super concerned about it on an annual basis, but now it's like every year you've got to weather these incredible fires and 
hope that, you know, it doesn't hit you or hit those, you know. Yeah. So, and as you know, I've got some poems in the book about the very next town to mine, Santa Rosa, uh, which, which burned and, uh, Petaluma became a sort of refugee camp for, for the people from Santa Rosa. Um, but also, and that, you know, sort of, there's a question like this environmental crisis is like really a, a real thing. It's a serious thing. It's the crisis of our time. What does poetry have to do with it? You know, um, like if people, if there's not that many people reading poetry, what's the point of writing about this stuff in poetry? But I think that it takes everything that the scientific language for describing our situation has been uh, employed for at least 20 years, uh, longer, really. Um, and it hasn't been uh, so effective that it's going to take um, poets and artists and novelists and um, for for that exigency to be felt by a large population. And I think poets have a role in that too. Sure, of course. And and like mapping too, I think like it's not just the the outer world, um, which I guess with increasing frequency people can finally see. I think one of the challenges with the climate change crisis is the fact that so many of the worst effects of it were a ways off and weren't in people's backyards necessarily. Like either a ways off temporally or a ways off geographically. Like maybe Alaska was warmer than ever and glaciers were melting, but down in Iowa, you didn't necessarily feel it. But now I feel like people are feeling it. And when I think of art, the, the role of art and literature in helping us map this, I think not only of nature itself and the careful observation of it, but I also think of the interior experiences of it. Uh, it's a, it's a serious stressor, um, you know, like fire danger in California. It's, a yeah. when those fires are happening it, pretty much every late summer, early fall now, and the sky is filled with smoke and the sun is like a blood orange and you can stare at it, you know, and just kind of see it hanging up there through the murk. It's deeply sad. Uh, we need art to help us find language for that experience and to help us deal with the emotional parts of it. Yeah, I, I agree. It's just uh, apocalyptical. Yeah. And we need language to to guide us through it. So when you when you went to San Francisco State to get your master's degree and to really kind of dig in and take poetry seriously, uh, is that where you wrote your earliest poems that were collected? Um, so I was... I had gone to William & Mary and uh, double majored in geology and English. Uh, I was kind of overtrained for my uh, master's course in uh, at San Francisco State. So I was just there for a year and a half. But it's where it was the early 80s, and San Francisco was a fantastic uh, um, Petri dish for poetry then. The language poets were making a lot of noise, the kind of poetry that I'd grown up learning was under complete attack, you know, the, the lyric was being questioned. And, and also I met this brilliant uh, woman from Arkansas, C.D. Wright. Um, and 
they um, and I met her because there's a poetry center at San Francisco uh, State University, which is really significant. And I was going there and just reading alphabetically uh, the books in there every day. And when I got to the W's and read a book by C.D. Wright, um, I realized she was on the other side of the stack. And I spoke to her and that led to, um, to, uh, you know, 35 years of living with this intense, brilliant, uh, poet. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, um, my condolences, I know that you wrote a collection called be with, um, you know, about, um, losing her and, um, I'm very sorry, but I, I also want to ask you if I may, uh, about the, collaborative nature like to be in a relationship with somebody who works in a similar vein but who also is such an inspiration uh, i have to imagine that has an enormous impact on your work and there's like a, a like a creative symbiosis that you know writers who are not in that situation lack um can you talk a bit more about that because i I'm married to a woman who is not a writer. You know, she doesn't work in a literary vein. I have friends who are in writerly couples. I'm always curious, you know, like what, um, like how it works, you know, like I, I, I know some people who like their spouse is their editor. Uh, if both, if both people are writing poetry or both people are writing fiction, is there like a healthy competition that, uh, happens? Is there a, an equality or a balance that happens in terms of like how much one edits the other or do you see what I'm saying? Like, I'm just curious to know how, how it functioned. (laughs) I've seen a number of other couples for whom it functions really differently. Um, especially if one becomes regarded as, uh, gets more attention than the other, it can be a difficult thing in a relationship, but, um, in our relationship, one, she was a, a, a bit older than me, so she already had a reputation while I was just um, forging, trying to forge one. So it didn't feel competitive in, in the beginning um, because we were at different levels. And in some sense, she was always at a different level. I would say from almost every other poet in the country, she, you know, as one of her um, obituaries said she was a school of exactly one. Um, she was a, a real original. Um, but we were, uh, we were each other's great readers um, for all that time. We would always show and trust because of that same thing, Brad, that you were talking about with that uh, professor that told me these poems are terrible. She didn't have any problem telling me my poems were terrible either. <laughs> Um, and, and versa visa, and that's what you want is someone who not only does that, but who can be a little more articulate about how you might make them less terrible. Right, right. That's always nice too. It's, it's nice when they give you the, it's terrible and here's how you can fix it. (laughs) Yeah. So we got good at that over 35 years. Yeah. Wow. And, um, is it, I mean, I, I have to imagine it's, uh, different experience writing without that? Or did she, I guess she probably left you with enough creative um, muscles and experience to, to manage it. Um, like just the, the difference in not having that sounding board has got to be significant. It is, 
It is significant, though it's also sort of instantiated in my brain. I, I, it's not like I live without her ever. Um, and I'm in a relationship now with, a, with an artist, with a sculptural artist named Ashwini Bhatt, whose, um, whose way of seeing has been quite, um, quite helpful to me, interesting to me, because it comes from a different direction. And I found it very useful, her critique. It's, it's hard, right, Brad, with, like with your own work? Do you, who do you show it to? Uh, my agent, my, uh, I have some writer friends, you know, that I'll share it with who, uh, who will be early readers and sounding boards. Um, my wife, you know, like just a small collection of people. Yeah. Um, but do you, do you feel guilty when you ask your friends to, you know, to, to read? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, you know, I even have friends who be like, I'll read it if you want. I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't, <laughs> don't, I don't, I won't do that to you, you know? And I think too. I always bang the table for editors um, and people who have editorial skill. Obviously, as a writer, you have to have the ability to edit yourself. I think part of being a, a skilled and uh, capable writer has to, something to do with that, has a lot to do with that. But people who can edit other people skillfully, that talent doesn't get the applause that it deserves. Um, it's sort of a in-the-shadows role that's so vital, and I'm amazed by people who can do that really well, who can go into a text written by somebody else, understand it from that person's perspective with a lot of depth and accuracy. That is something that I can do to a degree, but not with professional skill. Uh -huh. um, so I have limited faith in my ability as the editor of others. And I think that when I'm asked to evaluate somebody's work, I take that into consideration. I worry a bit. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to do a bad job. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like, uh, I feel like I wish I were better at it, to be honest. But I think it's like, it's one of those things, you know, it's like, you know how sometimes people say, well, I'm going to write a book one day, <laughs> you know, those kinds of like cocktail party conversations you have. Yeah. We've all heard that. Yeah. And you're like, okay, well, good luck to you. But I think the same thing, <laughs> could be, the same thing could maybe be said about, uh, editing, you know, I think maybe because it's, it's a little bit nebulous, you know, how to be good at it or something that everybody thinks they, they could do it or that their opinion would be uh, worth having. I'd, I'm not so sure, you know, I think there, there's certainly different levels and some people are very gifted at that. And I think that's where you want to land when you're handing your work off or, or having it handed to you. You want to really make sure you're honoring the process. Yeah. And it's hard to find those particular people. It's not just everybody. Yeah. You know, and, and also the emotional, like the, like the, the strength of relationship and the emotional ability to be willing to say like, this isn't right. Um, and here's why, you know, it can be hard to disappoint people. I would imagine you don't want to, I think part of that's part of my problem. I don't want to have to be like, I didn't like this, you know, but you have to be able to, to have those conversations skillfully. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think maybe the irony is that the writer hates to hear it at the beginning, but comes to be enormously grateful for it later. <laughs> yeah. And you hope they, they don't hold that grudge 
you know, for that however many years that is. Yeah, know? right. You know, but I don't know. I mean, just speaking from my own experience, there's nothing I'm like, please save me from myself. You know, like there's no, I, I'm all, like eternally grateful to anybody who can save me from um, bungling something on the page, you know, because of some blind spot. You know, it's all I want is basically somebody to do that. So, um, and that's the difference between, I think, the, yeah, the kind of artist I'm interested in being with, which is, which is the artist whose goal is no matter what, you want the work to be the best it can be. And then the, um, the artist who, well, I hear what you're saying, but I want it to be like that. Um, I want it not to work like that. Uh, you know, where they, the people that who just want praise. Right. Um, right. Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about this. It's kind of a thematic concern. It's certainly a thematic concern of twice alive, but you alluded to it briefly. Um, when we were talking about, um, CD is, uh, this notion of like how, you know, the criticism and those conversations around aesthetics and editorial concerns are kind of ingrained after all those years together. Uh, I was writing a letter to, um, a late friend of mine's parents. Uh, my friend passed away a decade ago, guy I grew up with, and I write to his parents, you know, uh, especially around the anniversary of his passing. And I was writing a letter kind of trying, you know, trying to say something not profound, but meaningful. Uh, and I found myself writing like, you know, still miss him, but never feel like he's very far. And it's a simple kind of common thing to say, but it struck me at a level of profundity when I put it down because I hadn't really given a lot of conscious thought to this notion that he never really seems very far, but it really, really struck me as true. I was like, wow, I, I don't think I feel some great distance from him. Uh, I don't think that I go through my, I mean, I certainly miss him um, in the day-to-day -day way that I once interacted and knew him, interacted with and knew him. But I guess it kind of surprised me, you know, it surprised me to, to see it on the page like that. Um, mm. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, do you know? Yeah. Oh, Pound has this, Ezra Pound has a beautiful line, you know, how, how can it be far if I can think of it? Um, and, um, I, you know, that's as, as we get older and our lives are, uh, impacted more and more by mortality. Um, the only way to survive it is to realize that we, we carry those people with us in not just some romantic or, you know, pictorial way, but in a, in a very real way. And sometimes I think about, um, the dreams that were told by the people that we're intimate with, um, dreams that your girlfriend told you when you were 23 and, and, um, and then those people disappearing from the world. And you have this memory, this thing in your mind that never existed anywhere in the world, uh, except in one person's brain, like the, the most intimate thing possible that you're carrying. That's part of you now. Um, those things, um, they fill me with, uh, a kind of, um, 
luminous joy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too about, I've been like thinking a lot about consciousness. I don't want to get too far. I'm going to screw up (laughs) the conversation because I don't have language for it necessarily or enough knowledge to speak of it, but I don't think anybody necessarily does. And so far as I understand, I don't think the scientific community has really figured out what exactly consciousness is. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is kind of a, as you were talking about that memory, I was thinking about this kind of binding quality that consciousness seems to have uh, for me, not just person to person, but person to plant and animal. Like I think yeah. it, it feels kind of like, I always compare it to like gravity for lack of a better thing, because it's this invisible force in the universe that impacts everything. And I feel like when it comes to loss and when it comes to this feeling of ever presence or connectivity across space and time, that consciousness, memory, the stuff of that kind of immaterial seeming experience, um, there's a lot of magic and mystery in it. And I think that's a place where I go mentally when I'm trying to make sense of these feelings. Yeah. So that's the place where art happens, right? It's that unknown. There's this beautiful thing that, uh, St. John of the cross, um, you know, he's a poet and a, and a martyr, right? He, he, he writes, Entreme donde no supe, y quédeme no sabiendo, toda ciencia trascendiendo. So I, I entered into unknowing, and I remained there without knowing, rising above all science or all you know scientific thought. And the thought that that's where you're going, that you need to get to a place of unknowing, where it's not determined, where there's not... Um, uh, a handy explanation for what's going on and that you feel something there that enlargens your soul. Um, That's, I think, what calls a lot of people towards art, you know, either as viewers or readers or writers or makers. You, do you think? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's also making me think, you know, you say it's from St. John of the Cross. It's also sounding very Buddhist to me. Um, That's like my primary orientation. And I'm always heartened when I feel these synergies, you know, because I think it's true that there are, you know, all these different traditions are basically headed in the same direction at their best, you know, different paths up the mountaintop. But it sounds like a description of the extinction of all notions of nirvana, you know, and, and getting to a place that's sort of beyond language and beyond takes uh and and attachments um mentally or otherwise and uh i guess i'm I'm curious to know uh on a related note if in your personal life or your uh day-to-day if there's like a spiritual tradition or practice that informs your work or has sustained you through the years yeah i think the um the spiritual practice of attentiveness, which is very much a Buddhist, you know, concept. But, um, you know, I'm very disappointed with the institutional religions of the world, almost every single one of which has misogyny at its root, you know. And 
even the Buddhists, I mean, look at what's happening with the Rohingya now, have a history of, you know, terrible violence of, you know, of using power over others. So my spiritual interests are more personal and also because I've been around people who um, can make beautiful grand statements um, that are very impressive and, and that maybe I've tried to be someone like that too, who can feel righteous about my statements. But when you get down to the lick log, it's, are you tender with those people that you're most intimate with, with the creatures around you that you're most, it's, it's at a, I think I, I say this in, in Be With, that um, the political begins in intimacy. And I think it's in our most intimate relations that we construct uh, the mode of being in the world that, um, that most counts. Yeah, that's a beautiful thought. I think that, um, yeah, I think talking of the, the of politics and um, as writers, I think we're all instinctively or in practice or hopefully, hopefully both cutting against mainstream cultural concerns. It, it sort of takes that. Yeah. And I think that it's easy to become overwhelmed when you try to consider what to do about political injustice, uh, any, any number of problems in the world, uh, like how to be, you know, how to be, what to do on a day to day. And there's something comforting and practical and deeply practical about narrowing it down to your own little domestic sphere. You know, the sphere of who you're intimate with, the sphere of, you know, wife, significant other, partner, children, neighbors, the animals in your backyard, you know, your dog or your cat, whatever it is, you know, start there and practice well and start small. And, you know, maybe uh, hopefully things will either build outward from that direction or will in some way take care of themselves, you know, because if you're not doing those things, how much good are you going to be out on the stump? You know, (laughs) like that's, I think that's really profound, um, Brad, that's, yeah. I, I think what you said is is what, what I believe. You can be my yogi. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I also relate very much to the the personal pursuit of it because, you know, I think at least some part of my creative self is a reaction against the Catholicism of my youth, which uh, I didn't jibe with. You know, like I, I've talked a bit about this on the show, but over, you know, through the years. But I just, I don't think I had great teachers. I think if I'd had like some really cool scholarly Jesuit to sort of help me sift through. Or Thomas Merton. Yeah. yeah, Thomas Merton. I would have been like, okay, well, then I can, I can deal with this. But I had people who are like, you will burn. <laughs> it's, not ex- it's not exactly a, you know, enticing. But um, I have, I think as a result of that and maybe just the way that I'm wired, I just have such a resistance and suspicion or skepticism of institutional religion. Um, even in Buddhism, you know, which is the one that I think fits me the best, um, psychologically, like even there, I've sort of kind of taken a cafeteria, you know, approach, um, where I kind of pick and choose the things that work for me. And, um, I think at its best that Buddhism's like, that's fine. You know, the, the, the best teachers are sort of advocating for that. They certainly don't want you to toe the line and, 
Yeah. Um, but I think, I think there's, there's a part of me that's like entirely comfortable working that way. Um, it's kind of who I am. There's another part of me that at, at times can feel a, a wish that I had a greater sense of community with others. You know what I'm saying? I'm kind of like that lone wolf with my nose in a book or I'm listening to a podcast trying to kind of put it together myself. And I'm like, you know, I wish that there was just like a really wise teacher and like three or four other people that I liked <laughs> who, I could, who I could sort of sit down with. We could kind of go over this together. I'd probably get there faster if I had that. But, you know, um, I haven't been able to find it yet. Well, that's curious. I mean, you talked about having these readers that you trust to act, uh, to read your work. And then this whole enterprise of your podcast is, you know, this very large making of community um what robert creedy used to call a company you know you you put a company together that's um that would seem to be sustaining to some some degree no oh it is it is yeah i think like i'm speaking more like narrowly in the of spiritual concerns you know like i was thinking of like sitting under a large tree or something (laughs) having having somebody teach you know teach me the way um like that sort of you know, you want that, it's like kind of a common desire to have somebody who's like really, really wise kind of, uh, accelerate your progress, you know, and, and even more than that. And maybe like at a lower human level, this, uh, this notion of wanting somebody like that to see something in you, you've got potential kid, you've got a big soul, you know, or whatever it is. And I, you know, I, I think that you can spend a long time maybe waiting for that to happen, but I, I do. I appreciate you saying that about community with respect to this show, because I certainly feel that. And I think sometimes because it's a virtual, especially in the age of the pandemic community, uh, sometimes that aspect of it can get short shrift or could be overlooked. But I think for for me, both as a person who's moderating a show like this, but also as a person who listens to a lot of audio, um, a lot of podcasts, there that's some of the best stuff about the whole thing is the sense of community that you feel and connectivity that you feel uh even though you might be at a physical remove you know that that's certainly like one of the higher aspirations that i have for this show from the jump was that you know you have all these different writers and readerly and literary people out there um working in their little hovels uh and to provide a sense of connectivity and conversation that could sort of bridge some of those divides, you know, and make people feel less alone in their, in their labor. <laughs> yeah. You put down the mycelium. Yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And as you say that, I mean, we talked about Stamets and, uh, Ann Pringle earlier and mycology and the mystery and, and majesty and kind of overlooked mystery and majesty of, of the mushroom kingdom. But uh, tell me about that again, like, cause I remember, like there's a there's a communicative property to mushrooms. I believe it's subsurface that is extraordinary. Am I misremembering this? Like they they really talk to one another. And you also mentioned the uh, predictive quality of lichens with respect to pollution. You know, the, I think the word litmus is derived, or lichen is de- derived from the word for litmus, or you know whatever it is. There's an etymological connection there, but. Um, there's an intelligence to mushrooms that I don't think people realize. Uh, can you speak well, to that a bit? 
just that's you know that's been the this you know brilliant revelatory um scientific uh um consensus in in the last 20 years is that there's no such thing as a single tree that uh, right we see a mushroom but a mushroom is just the fruiting body of a large organism that is under underground that we don't see you know the real fungus is underground this this little thing that pops up into our view is uh, is a tiny part of it you can kick it and you won't kick it off and you don't injure the the fungus at all um, so that um, that sense of uh, of the buried life, the invisible life, the connected life um, is is the sense that has to drive us towards being a, a less egocentric um, uh, and uh, egocentric species that thinks thinks of ourselves as this singularity. We we are nature. We are an animal. Um, we are composed of all kinds of other animals, even at the level of our DNA. So we're a, we're a multiple. And until we begin to invest in ourselves and, and our world um, with with that in mind, it's very easy to uh, to be as short sighted as we've been and to um, to be in, in, in the predicament that we've brought us to where species are just winking out like crazy and the coral in the sea is drying up and the tundra is wakening. And um, I mean, just uh, dramatically, dr dramatic uh, world changes. What about despair? Uh, I, I feel like it's a natural way to feel when you consider all this, like as you were like enumerating those things, like, the tundra, the species winking out, the coral drying up. I mean, we've all seen these stories, or most of us have anyway, uh, with respect to the climate crisis. And um, I've done a bit of reading uh, in this space, like books about what we're up against. And man, th those are some harrowing reads. You know, I, I think when you're actually faced with what the future in even just the next 50 to 100 years could look like, it can leave you overwhelmed and despairing. Uh, like, I'm sure you felt those feelings. I'm wondering how you deal with them and like where you find hope. Yeah, I I got to meet um, James Baldwin once in Providence at a uh, at a First Baptist Baptist Church there, and I remember him saying that you cannot let your bitterness overtake your creativity. You can't let your bitterness destroy you, and there's a beautiful poem by Jack Gilbert also called uh, A Brief for the Defense, where he talks about, of course, there's there's misery everywhere. There's, you know, flies in the eyes of babies and people starving to death. And yet even the poor um, will laugh. Even, you know, in, in the poorest places I've been in Western China, um, people have art in their house. You know, they've painted their walls They're They don't live without moments of joy. And that if we let our despair overwhelm us, then we become helpless, uh, helpless to fight against it. So 
I do look for hopeful ways of um, of imagining a future. Some scientists are saying it's too late. You know, we're we're not going to be able to recover it. Uh, Gary Snyder said to me that um, the world's going to be fine without us. He's not going to get that you know that worried about what's going to happen because it'll keep going. The human isn't you know the necessary part of the equation. But I think the human can be a part of the equation if we act more responsibly uh, on the world, act more as though we have an intimate relationship with all otherness, not just um, the otherness in the house, you know, under our roof. Yeah, you know, that Gary Snyder anecdote you just told made me think of two things. First of all, it made me think of George Carlin, the late, great George Carlin. And yeah. he, ha- he has this great bit about people saying they're going to save the planet. And he's like, the planet is going to be fine. He's like, we're fucked. <laughs> you know? yeah. He's like, pack your bags, folks. You know, like, like we're not going to save the planet. The planet's just fine without us. It's been around yeah. for, you know, millions and millions of years. But um, that, you know, that resonates. And then there's also another um, Gary Snyder anecdote that y- your story brought to mind and I'm going to be paraphrasing, but basically uh, Snyder was talking about environmental activism and the seat of motivation for it. Like if you're out there and you're deeply concerned as I think so many of us are about the state of things ecologically and the future that we're going to leave for our kids and grandkids and all the rest. um, He was saying something along the lines of like, don't do it out of guilt or Mm. self-hatred. Do it because you love it. That's the uh, thing, to bring love love into the equation, not just despair, not just fear, um, but to do it because we love each other and we love being here. Yeah, and the planet. And, you know, uh, I, it also makes me think of all these, like the expeditions to Mars. I've gone back and forth through the years, you know, with my, like there's part of me, like the the comedic side of me is like mars looks like a hellscape it's freezing who wants to go there (laughs) um like i'll stay here thanks like i'm perfectly happy to stay here and you know on this sweltering blue marble or whatever but um i uh i i think that's a little bit limiting i think that there's something great and noble about the spirit of exploration and i think it's awesome to imagine our species like venturing out into the cosmos like it's a very natural progression um it's maybe the most natural thing you could imagine is that like where are we we're in this vast universe like of course we're going to explore it of course we should have that impulse and want to do that but um unless and until we can find a planet more habitable (laughs) i'm going to mars isn't going to be yeah no i'm going to wish to stay here and hope that we can reckon with our failings you know um and the damage that we've done and and try to correct it you know and maybe hold out hope that there's going to be some innovation of some kind that can help to to help fix things like maybe that's a a technological hope that you know is piled on top of a bunch of problems that were created by (laughs) by too much technology or something but you know hopefully there's going to be a brighter day 
I think it'll be a combination of things, and I, I don't think it'll be one fix. I think we can do small things. Um, Biden's, you know, Biden's proposals for energy policies are really encouraging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been, um, been hopeful thinking about that. I hope that we can get them over the line, you know, all of them, and and uh, see them put into practice because we don't have much time. You know, it's got to happen. Yeah. Um. Last thing I want to ask you, since, you know, it's especially germane because I think today they're announcing the Pulitzers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you are a, a Pulitzer Prize winner. And I, I'm always interested to hear people's experiences. I've talked to some people who have won major literary awards in the past. I often ask them, like, what was it like to get that award? Like, what, what did it actually, how did it actually happen? Where were you? What was your response? Was it a surprise? All those things. It, it was a total shock. It's still sort of a shock. I feel like uh, one of my heroes is a poet named George Oppen, who lived in San Francisco for a long time. And he seems like a really unlikely character to win a Pulitzer Prize. But he did for a book I, I really love called Of Being Numerous. Um, and I feel like an outsider like him. I think partly it, it might be I think of it as a reward for um, not just one book, but maybe, you know how these things happen. It's supposed to be for one book, but I think um, it was also kind of for, you know, for 50 years of writing or something um, for uh, for a lot of books. And um, it's really, you know, it's really validating. It really, you know... It's not, it's not, yeah, it, it felt really good, Brad. It, um, it felt really good to have my peers uh, choose that. I'd had another book, Core Samples from the World, that had been a Pulitzer uh, finalist. Um, but those, uh, you know, when you're a, a announced, um, if you're giving a reading or something and 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 x was a he was a finalist for this and a finalist for that and you know but with the pulitzer i finally won it yeah right (laughs) it's like now now you are forever a pulitzer prize winning poet that's you know that's great and i feel like uh it would have to have at least some impact on i don't know uh, like your work as a poet you're in getting invited to teach or getting invited to read that sort of stuff has to pick up as a result no are there material changes that you've noticed in the aftermath yeah and that was good because um in the wake of cd's death i again sort of fled my my life i sold my house at a loss i moved to california i quit my job a terrific job at brown university and um and so with the Pulitzer, it's enabled me to continue to uh, earn a living um, while I'm not uh, teaching full time. Um, And that's been practically very, very useful. I think uh, also at sort of the level of writing, it gave me a little more um, confidence about the trajectory that I wanted to take my work in. And so... I think the new book Twice Alive is a is a better book. It it won't win the Pulitzer, but I think it's probably the best book that I've written, and it's partly because of the um, uh, 
the sense that I had of what worked, um, what worked for a larger audience with Be With, that allowed me to move in this trajectory with this book, Brad. Well, I certainly enjoyed it, and I've loved talking with you. Uh, I'm wondering, I, I guess that this one's making its way out into the world. I don't mean to to get ahead of ourselves here, but are you working on anything new? Like, are you are you always kind of putting uh, words on the page and, and working towards a new collection or is there anything like material in the offing? I have, uh, I've been working on translations since, uh, since I finished that book and uh, I, I've translated a book by a, a fantastic Mexican poet named Coral Bracho and that'll come out next year from New Directions. And then I, co-translate from Japanese because my Japanese isn't good enough to do. Um, and I, I've done a couple books and, uh, and I trans finished a new translation by a poet named Shuri Kido. And that book will come out from Copper Canyon. Awesome. So I haven't been writing, uh, Oh, new poems, except for this, uh, collaboration with a photographer named Jack Shear. Um, which has been really fun. And right, when I felt kind of stuck about what I wanted to do, that came along as a project where I'm writing poems for his photographs that um, that felt great. Well, uh, I congratulate you on all of the above, and I appreciate the, the time and uh, uh, that you've taken here to, to talk with me and my listeners. Thank you, Brad. You're like the easiest person in the world to talk with. And it's not just with me. It's, I, you know, you have that in you with all the people you talk with. It's, yeah, you have a, a, a tremendous facility. Oh, well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. All right, there you have it. That is Forrest Gander. His new collection is called Twice Alive. Available now from New Directions. You can find him online. His website is forestgander.com. Once again, the new collection is called Twice Alive. Available now from New Directions. Go get your copy online or in person at the bookstore. Twice Alive. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show, more than 700 episodes and counting, all of it is made available to you, the listener, for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you listen regularly, if you like the program, if you get something from it, and if you have the means, support the show. Tip your server. You can do that over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod for as little as $1 a month people you can support the show there are different levels and tiers of support at higher levels you can get stuff uh, t-shirt tote bag coffee mug sticker i will write you a postcard and deliver it to your house not personally you know what i mean i'll send you a postcard i'll wish you a happy birthday patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you have something to say to me, if you you know want to offer some feedback, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. Go get the app, the Other People with Brad Listy app, available now wherever you get apps. It's a good app. The Other People Podcast is a... Uh, 
available on YouTube as well. Did you know that? This is a relatively new development. The Other People Podcast YouTube channel. The entire archive is up there on YouTube. Go get it. Subscribe. It also helps this program if you offer up a review on Apple Podcasts. Review the show wherever you can. It helps it uh, find new listeners algorithmically. All right. I don't know what's coming up next. Who's coming up next? I think it's Greg Gerke.